I love to run. It's what I do. It's what I am. People are always asking me, Blaine, tell me why you run all the time. My response is always the same. I run because I'm a runner. Well, I haven't always been a runner. A couple years ago, I decided I'd give it a try. So I did what I saw other runners do. I joined the track team. quickly learned that just being on the track team doesn't make you a runner. I mean, I get out there and run my heart out, but I always seem to fear. Running straight isn't as easy as it looks. I was about to give up when I finally realized what was different about me. I was the only one wearing a watch. That's why I couldn't run. The watch was weighing me down. Though it was big and weighed a ton, I was kind of attached to my watch. Literally, I couldn't get it off. I have tried before. I tried to pull it off, tear it off, cut it off. I tried many things. I finally just got used to it. I mean, yeah, it hindered my running, but people thought it was cool. I actually made friends because of it. We all have crossroads in life. This was mine. I realized I had a choice. Get rid of the watch somehow or get out of the race. At that moment, I made the decision. I chose to become a runner. Right then, I heard somebody say, do you want me to take the watch off? This guy was standing next to me. It kind of freaked me out. I guess he knew what was going on. I told him I wanted to be a runner, but couldn't do it with my watch. He asked me again, do you want me to take off the watch? I said yes. He smiled and somehow managed to take it right off. My life since then has been all about running. I mean, I'm running now in a way I never thought I could before. I still stumble at times, but I never fall. I have a passion for running I never dreamed I would have. I owe a lot to that guy who freed me from my watch or shackles or whatever you want to call it. I sometimes wonder what he did with my watch. But I do know this, what he did set me free. My name is Blaine, I'm a runner. a little bit of a love-hate relationship with that little metaphor and I want to tell you why. On one hand I love it because there's a lot about it that's true but on the other hand uh, I have some mixed feelings about it because it seems overly simplistic to me like once you come to faith in Christ the struggle is gone. Does that resonate with anybody's experience here? In the video he said after the watch came off in other words, after he came to faith in Christ, he would still stumble sometimes. Can we talk about that part? Like the still stumbling sometimes part of our journey in following God in the way of Jesus? The watch coming off, as important as that is, 
it's just the first step. It's not the end game. It's not the full story of following God in the way of Jesus. So last week, we started the series called Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places. And uh, Egypt in the Bible is the place where God's people were enslaved for 430 years. And Exodus, the second book in the Bible, is their story of deliverance, their story of finding freedom from slavery. Now, the Israelites had to get out of Egypt, and then they had to get Egypt out of them. And that is our journey as well. The Exodus story is our story because we're all enslaved. We are all in need of freedom from the personal Egypts of our lives. As free as we often imagine ourselves to be, each of us continues to wrestle with what the scriptures would call the old self. It is those parts of you and I that are still enslaved and not yet free for the full flourishing that we are made for. And we all have those places where we are still enslaved, where our old self is still running the show. Now, last week, we talked about how um, when it comes to our lives, we want to be in control. So when we, we experience pain, often we choose to cope rather than surrender. And we said last week that the first step of leaving Egypt the first step of finding freedom in our lives is simply acknowledging our chains. As long as we are in coping mode, we are not in surrendering mode. And the first step to surrendering, to finding freedom, is acknowledging that we have chains in the first place, admitting that we are in bondage or in slavery in some way. So this week, we're going to talk about, so then how do we find freedom? Okay, we've acknowledged our chains. We've admitted our slavery uh, in these different aspects of our lives. Now, how do we find freedom? We want to be free very often. We want to be free, but we don't know how. That was true for the Israelites as well. And God does not expect us to figure out abundant life on our own. He has given us guidelines and companions to foster freedom on our journey. Egypt, remember, was first of all a good place, a place of provision and protection. That's where it began. It began as a good place. Over time, it became a prison. And often that's true in our lives as well. Something that begins as a good thing becomes an idol or an ultimate thing that is actually enslaving us. Now, once God delivered the people from Egypt, the very next thing that he did was give them the law, the Ten Commandments. He didn't leave them on their own. The very next thing they di he did was give them the law. So today we're going to talk about God's law. But let's read this passage, Exodus 20, 1 through 17. This is the message translation. God spoke all these words. I am God, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a life of slavery. No other gods, only me. 
No carved gods of any size, shape, or form of anything, whatever, whether of things that fly or walk or swim. Don't bow down to them and don't serve them because I am God, your God. And I'm a most jealous God, punishing the children for any sins their parents pass on to them, to the third, and yes, even to the fourth generation of those who hate me. But I'm unswervingly loyal to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. No using the name of God, your God, in curses or silly banter. God won't put up with the irreverent use of his name. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work six days and do everything you need to do. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to God, your God. Don't do any work. Not you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your servant, nor your maid, nor your animals, not even the foreign guest visiting in your town. For in six days, God made heaven, earth, and sea, and everything in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the Sabbath day. He set it apart as a holy day. Honor your father and mother so that you'll live a long time in the land that God, your God, is giving you. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lies about your neighbor, no lusting after your neighbor's house, or wife or servant or maid or ox or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. In today's political climate, when we talk about laws, there's kind of some baggage for a lot of people. There's all sorts of connotations, because oftentimes in our world today, we think of laws as things created by corrupt lawmakers in a corrupt lawmaking system. But you cannot read the Bible. Old Testament or New Testament without having to deal with the law of God. And Protestants, people from a Protestant stream of Christendom, have an even harder time grasping the meaning of the law. Because in church history, the Reformation brought on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is a proper response to an overemphasis sometimes on a works-based salvation, attaining salvation through what we do. But in this emphasis on justification by faith alone, I, a new problem developed in church history, a new misunderstanding of the heart of the gospel. See, In steering away from the ditch of legalism, we don't want to be legalistic. I wonder if we have sometimes left the road to holiness. Or forgotten that God also cares about what we do and why we do it. See, when we talk about God's laws... God's laws are not about condemnation. God's laws are always about invitation. In Jesus, God's laws are not about condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. See, he was condemned, so you and I don't have to be. It's not about condemnation. It is about invitation. It is about invitation to wholeness, 
invitation to life in his kingdom. It really is, at the heart of it, God's laws, it's an invitation to freedom. Within God's laws, God's kingdom, God's ways, is a richer, deeper, greater, more compelling purpose for our lives. So the Ten Commandments, often called the Decalogue or the Ten Words, that is the central command of God to Israel. It's given right after their liberation from slavery in Egypt. So God brought his people out of Egypt, and he instructed them. He didn't bring them out and leave them to flounder and figure it out on their own. He brought them out of slavery, and he instructed them with the new, better way they were to live. So Walter Brueggemann, commentator, he says this, this speech, the Ten Commandments, gives to Israel God's full intention for the life of creation. All other law in Israel is reflective commentary upon this decree. Now, typically, the Decalogue is considered to be, like, broken into two tablets, commands 1 through 4, and then commands 5 through 10. But probably a better way to understand it would be 1 through 3, and then a connecting command, the Sabbath, that connects the two, and then 5 through 10, almost like 3. So let's just look at these briefly together. Commands 1 through 3, words 1 through 3, were this. No other gods before me. No bowing down to images. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. These first three are teaching the people to have devotion to God. No other gods before me. It's about integrity. It's about a focus on wholeness. These are instructions to resist our human tendency towards hyper-compartmentalizing like, I got my work life here. I got my church life here. No, 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 no. No other gods before me. I'm to be number one. And then you have command number four, Sabbath. This is a focus on rest. This is God saying to the people, you are made in my image. You are not human doings. You are human beings. And I myself created the whole world, and then rested. And I want you, too, to rest, to resist the tendency towards hyper-productivity, the always-on, always-achieving way in which we tend to live. So that's almost like a connecting command between these two tablets. And then Words 5 through 10 are honor your father and mother, no murder, no adultery, do not steal, or give false testimony, or covet. This is then a focus on social wellness. This is about resisting the tendency towards hyper-individualism. That would say it's all about me. God's laws are an invitation to freedom, but often... We view it not as an invitation to freedom, but to bondage. See, the lie of the evil one would be to convince you and I that God's laws are actually greater bondage when, in fact, they are the path to freedom. So let me illustrate a couple ways that we do this. We tend to think freedom 
is I can spend money on whatever I want, whenever I want. That that's freedom. That that's financial freedom. I can spend on whatever I want, wherever I want. And then you see in the Old Testament this principle of the tithe, where God says, give 10% right off the top and learn to live off the remaining 90%. And we tend to go, oh, that, that's, that bondage, that's slavery. No, do you want to know what bondage and slavery is? Bondage and slavery is I am making six or seven figures, but I'm living paycheck to paycheck because I'm enslaved to spending, wanting. That's bondage. That's slavery. Do you know what freedom is? Freedom is the best things in life. They're not things anyway. So I can give generously, and I can save, and I am not a slave to buying I am not a slave to these desires, insatiable wanting for more, the next, the bigger, the greatest. We believe the lie, and we think God's law is bondage, when actually it leads to freedom. Or, here's another one, another way we do this. We think if what I'm doing with my body isn't hurting anyone, that's freedom. That's sexual freedom. I can watch whatever I want to watch. I can swipe right as much as I want. I can hook up as many times with practically lost count. But God's way would be bondage. No, it's the exact opposite. God's laws are invitations to freedom, a freedom that comes to know that true intimacy is that full reveal that I can trust all of me to all of you because I know you are committed and I know that you are faithful. And so I embrace purity, not as bondage, but as a path to freedom. See, we get the enemy of our souls would twist our thinking. Here's another one. Like, I, you know, might think, oh, freedom is I can always have the last word in conversation, like I'm always going to show up as the smartest, the cleverest, I got to prove my rightness. So when God invites me into silence and solitude, the lie would say that's bondage, no. No, actually silence and solitude trains me in a path of freedom where I don't need to have the last word I don't need to be the most clever, the most smart in the room. Romans 8, 7 says, The mind governed by the flesh, or the sinful nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Last week, uh, I mentioned that in Romans 7 and 8, Paul is referencing the Exodus He's talking about being a slave to sin, and he's saying, you know, I don't do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do, and I'm wrestling with this old nature within me. Up until that point in Romans, Paul has only mentioned the Holy Spirit a couple times, but in this chapter, he mentions the Holy Spirit like 18 times. Because when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit enters your life and 
gives you a new mindset, the mind of Christ. So Romans 8, 5 through 7 says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So in this passage, Paul would say the alternative to a mind governed by the spirit is death. That's what he would describe it as. And see, sin and shame, it is death to us. It is turmoil to us. We believe a lie that says sin is satisfying, that greed is good, that sleeping around is fun and normal, that everyone, everybody lies and cheats sometimes, that evil, that's just entertainment. You know, we got to take care of ourselves. We believe those lies. But if you can just almost like step back, like, how's that working for you? Paul would say that is death. That is turmoil. That when we disobey God's law and God's, it's not, it, it is actually death to us. That it is inwardly and outwardly death. That our bodies actually keep the sto- score. They remember. I mean, we like to think of sin as kind of a private, like it's private, it's individual. But the Bible would say, no, 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 no. It unsettles, it confuses, it darkens, it creates a mess for you that people quite literally like disintegrate. They, they are ripped apart at the spiritual seams because of sin and because of shame. And of course, God did not leave us in that state. He both sent Christ to be condemned so we don't have to be, and he provided a way to live life in his kingdom through his spirit. When we live in accordance with God's spirit, Paul says that is life and peace. Even in terrible circumstances, there is a quiet place of life and peace with God and his love for us. Now, when we talk about God's laws, God's laws are not about behavior modification. Remember, Jesus had some harsh words for the Pharisees because they followed all the rules. They kept the laws to a T. And Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You keep all the laws, but inside, your heart is dead. See, God's laws, it's an invitation to life in his kingdom. It's an invitation to freedom. It is not about behavior modification. I was was thinking about my six-year-old son, Russell, and how uh, recently I asked him to do something, and he, like, stormed away angry in a huff to do it. Here's the thing. As his mom, I don't want just compliance I want Russell to become the kind of kid the kind of man 
who has the heart that wants to do the right thing. I want him to develop the kind of heart that wants to be kind to his sister, not just do it with a huff because mom said so. See, God is most concerned about our hearts because whatever is in your heart eventually will leak out into your life. And the invitation in God's laws, God's ways, when Jesus talks about life in his kingdom, the Beatitudes, what life looks like in his kingdom, it's an invitation to freedom. It is a path to life in his kingdom that transforms our hearts, not just our actions. So author Dallas Willard talks about how the human self is made up of several interrelated components, connected but also separate, different facets of ourselves. And he talks about it like this, and I find this helpful. He says, imagine that you, the human self, are almost like there's these different aspects of you sitting around a boardroom table, okay? You're in a boardroom. The different facets that make up you are around that table. So what are the facets? Different things like your heart, your will, your ability to choose, to decide, your mind, your body, Uh, your soul, your social context. These are the different aspects that make up you. Also, your thoughts and your feelings. Now, Dallas would say thoughts and feelings are like two sides of one coin. That you and I do not have a feeling that is not connected to a thought. Every time you feel something, it is connected to a thought. That's two sides of the same coin, your thoughts, your feelings. So when you feel something, you can ask yourself, what thought led to that feeling? And is it consistent with how God would think, the mind of Christ? So each of these needs to come into submission to the lordship of Jesus in your life. Following God in the way of Jesus is not praying a prayer once upon a time so that you go to heaven when you die. Jesus never talked about salvation that way. Jesus just invited people into life in his kingdom. Thy will be done. He never sold the kingdom. It wasn't a sales pitch. He just invited people into life in his kingdom. Life in his kingdom is all of the facets of you over time, over a lifetime, coming into submission to the lordship of Jesus. It's bringing the whole of you into life in God's kingdom. Now, make no mistake about it, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, and there's the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of God is wherever God is king. It is where God's will is done. But there's two kingdoms, which means it is completely possible to be firmly living in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, to have your priorities, your life, your choices, your thinking, your feelings, your body slave to the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of this world and just have like a Jesus bumper sticker on your life. That's completely possible. So discipleship or spiritual formation, what Jesus invites us into, is a life of apprenticeship to him. Where every thought becomes captive to Christ. Where my body, my social context, my heart, my will, my mind, over time, all the facets of me, say thy will be done and come under the lordship of Christ. See, here's the thing. When your body or your thoughts or your feelings are running the show of your life, you end up addicted and enslaved. So do I. When my body is running the show, I end up addicted and enslaved. When my thoughts and my feelings are running the show and they are not in submission to the Lord Jesus, then I become in addicted and enslaved. So this is the invitation to follow Jesus. It's not just about church attendance. It's not about praying a prayer. It's not about having the right doctrines. It is about building an entirely new platform for your life that begins with what Christ did on the cross. And then it continues every single day, moment by moment, day by day, for a whole life of bringing all the facets of you into God's kingdom. So, you know, I can't tell you how many times I will hear people lament to me, why is God not rescuing me from this pain? And sometimes I want to say two things. How much of this pain is self-inflicted because you've had two feet firmly planted in the kingdom of this world, in the kingdom of darkness? And when you realize you're in that pain, you have a choice. You're going to cope or you're going to surrender. And then secondly, Jesus never promised a pain-free existence. And so when we experience that, when we acknowledge that, first of all, is there any aspect of me that's firmly planted in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of this world, that is an opportunity to turn and to repent and to remember that every time we do that, what is God doing? Running to you with open arms. Every single time. He's not standing there with a stick or a lecture he is running to you with open arms every time you turn and repent. So I just want to give you a couple minutes as we close to think about what does this look like for you? What is the personal Egypt that you might be stuck in? What are maybe some spiritual practices you could embrace this week to move towards freedom in Christ? Now, um, when it comes to spiritual practices, uh, just a quick word about that. It is an invitation to deepen a friendship with God. That's what spiritual practices are. Spiritual disciplines, if it feels like a heavy yoke to you, it's probably not the one for you right now. Okay, so there's spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. They're about an invitation to deeper friendship with Christ. I was talking to my mom on the phone recently, and she was telling me that her and my dad 
they're, they're retired. They live in Arizona. She said, um, yeah, your dad and I have just been blocking out the calendar every Friday to have a date day. So a date day is a day they spend together and they take turns planning the date day. And um, so I'm listening to her tell me this. And, you know, I'm in the stage with little kids at home right now. And so I am thinking, a date day? Seriously, like your whole lives are a date day. <laughs> but that picture of carving out time, that's kind of the heart of a spiritual practice. It's saying, I'm going to clear my calendar at this time in this way. Your presence here in worship is one of those ways. Some of you I know have told me I wake up early and I do the daily practice or another tool, devotional tool. It's clearing out your schedule to deepen your friendship with God. But there's kind of two different, there's disciplines or practices of engagement and practices of disengagement. So disengagement practices, they help us detach from the kingdom of this world, from the kingdom of self-preservation. They help us straighten out what's twisted inside of us. Things like silence and solitude and fasting and secrecy. And then there's disciplines of engagement. If, if disciplines or practices of, uh, of disengagement are almost like a detox you do for your body, practices of engagement are like good, solid nutrition, making you stronger, equipping you for life as a citizen of heaven. In a sense, engagement practices, it's not about getting hell out of me. It's like about getting heaven into me. It's not about getting out of Egypt. It's about getting Egypt out of me kind of picture. So those are things like studying God's word, worship and celebration, various forms of prayer, service to others. So I'm going to just close in prayer, and the band is going to come up, and I just want to give you a few moments of silent, quiet reflection to think about where are you today? What Egypt might you be trapped in? Because again, we all get trapped in our, those ways, the old self, those places in us that are still enslaved. Where are you with that? Have you admitted your chains? And do you want to talk to God about leaving the road of coping to the road of surrender? And what might be a practice, a discipline that he might invite you into to embrace freedom in him. So let's pray, and we'll take a few moments of quiet reflection. Lord, in these days leading up to Easter, we want to pause and contemplate and better understand the places we're stuck and the way in which your death is and resurrection is really the only reason we can be forgiven and can live in freedom. Because of your spirit, we can have the mind of Christ and the power to live life in your kingdom. I want to give you a quiet moment to just pray right now. Talk to God about your life and ask him what practices you could embrace to deepen your friendship with him.
Father God, thank you that every time we get up from that pig pen and turn towards you, you're already running towards us with arms open wide in love welcoming us home. Please release us from our bondage and all our trivial concerns. Please focus our attention and remove the distractions. Embolden us to be people who face danger with no fear. God, would you lessen our talking and increase our listening? Captivate our minds and our hearts with a vision of your kingdom and increase our longing to know you more. Jesus, we want to know you and the power of your resurrection. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody who agreed said, 